Section 12 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsie Selwyn. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 1, Chapter 7, Part 3. 9. After the funeral, Joanna did not see the sun for a fortnight. She never went out, not even to the garden. She alone had followed the coffin to the grave, for Madalina still lay in a darkened room, but she had not seen her dead husband. The brothers at the Misericordia supported the doctor in this, and thinking to treasure her last sight of him alive, Joanna had not insisted. The bicycle she had seen and was crushed and twisted as might have been a penny toy. She did not weep, but when she was not tending Madalina, she sat huddled up, her head on her hands, her eyes staring into distance. And a deep vertical line came between her brows. At first, all the time, and again and again, she was irresistibly trying to relive the experience which had been Mario's in the moment of meeting death. It was as if, before grieving for her own loss, she must share this with him. She saw the crossroads, where she had once been with him, the hidden, noiseless carriage, the tearing bicycle with Mario on it, part of it. There must have been one clear, frantic moment of knowledge, then the smash. Joanna lived through it with every sinew and nerve in her body strong. They had brought not a word, not even a cry for her to hold on to. If only there had come the smallest message. Why had he been riding on the wrong side? It was not like him, yet it was like him to be wiped out in a moment. In spite of her obedience to the brothers, when she tried now to call up the white, vivid face which had been so delightful to her, she could only see it agonized, infuriated, or piteously disfigured. Was it because she had disobeyed him that last day? Why else should he look so angry with her in death? Why else should he be riding on the wrong side? She tried to put the thought from her, but it recurred. Each night she prayed on her knees that she might dream of him smiling at her, but she slept hardly at all, and when she did she started awake with murder on her soul. Letters came from home, a few shy lines from each of the boys, a long scrawl from Georgie, very affectionate and begging her sister to use the words passed on instead of died, and from her mother almost daily letters, which by the many erasures Joanna knew had been written in forbidden hours. Julie had at once offered to come to Italy, but the girl forbade it, saying she would herself come home as soon as she could leave Madalena in the company of an old friend who was coming from Sicily to be with her. To return home seemed the only reasonable course. Joanna had come to feel a great tenderness for Madalena. She was moved as well as surprised to find how the elder woman clung to her, for Mario's death had worked a curious change between the two women, and now it was the southerner who, with every action, betrayed her spiritual dependence on the northerner. But save for Madalena, there was no life for Joanna in Florence, and as the days crept past and past, she had to admit that life was still before her. In time, Madalena would once more take up the orderly threads of existence in her efficient hands, and the friend from Sicily would probably make her home at the villa. But Joanna could not consent to live on her sister-in-law, Apart from the remnant of Mario's savings, a bare fifty pounds, she was left without money. No, she must go back to Glasgow and learn how to live. There were listless hours, wasted years to be made good. 
She felt rather like a child who has played truant from school and is led back to its task. Joanna decided that she would break the return journey at Vera Reggio, there to see Aunt Purdy and deliver Julie's present. A visit had more than once been suggested, but till now it had not been practicable. At the station in Florence, she hung round Madalena's neck. Though Madalena's face was swollen above the high, tight-fitting black neckband, and her eyelids were sodden and puffy, she seemed to have shed all her tears. But amid the distractions of packing, it was two days since Joanna had cried, and now her eyes streamed. People looked with open expressions of sympathy at the embracing women dressed in deepest continental mourning. At first Joanna had tried to keep some moderation in her weeds, but seeing at once that her sister-in-law would be hurt by any opposition in the matter, she had become passive. It would be easy to modify her dress when she reached home. Now she wore a skirt bordered with a hem of crepe half a yard deep, and a bodice without an inch of white anywhere, and the black veiling which fell from the brim of her hat reached almost to her heels at the back. With her youth and her white skin she was notable, and she felt like an adventuress. A pang of surprised amusement shot through her when she thought what Mario's feelings would have been at seeing her thus conspicuous. It was as if, far down in the dark morning waters, a silver bubble of laughter were released in struggling upwards. The inclination to laugh was intense, inebriating. It seemed years since she had laughed. For a wild moment, she thought she must spout her soul out in an eruption of old schoolgirl madness of laughter. But the moment passed, and she only hugged Madalena the tighter because of it, and smiled at her the more tenderly. When the train bore her out of the station and into the sunshine of the unstricken world, a new, rare spring of happiness came welling up suddenly in her life. She had no definite thought of its source. She merely knew that somehow, undeservedly, she had escaped. The words passed through her mind. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. In spite of a voice of denial deep buried in her, she saw herself in the image of a dove. But it was with more than the wood pigeon's wildness that she was now spreading her wings. In her body she still grieved for Mario, but she was unbroken and still hungry for life, which was only beginning. Though she was going home, she was not going back, not going with the man from Edinburgh. Home was the next step forward, that was all. And now that she knew how ill-equipped she was, she must work. How she must work. As the train ran on through the singing fields, Joanna drank the sunshine with an overflowing heart, like one who has done murder in self-defense and is reprieved. She was full of honey-sweet defiance against death. It was still early in the afternoon when she climbed down from the train at Veraregio. For a moment she looked about her lost. Had no one come to meet her after all? Then she knew for her aunt an outlandish figure which came flying towards her from the far end of the station, as if on fawn-colored wings. The wings on nearer view turned out to be cape sleeves of a buff dolman, which had been fashionable ten or twelve years before, and which Purdy always wore on her rare descents to the town. As she ran to meet her niece, this garment fled apart in front, showing the coarse full skirt of a contadina, and her zakili clacked rapidly on the hard track, as her heels and their thick red cotton socks parted from the wooden soles with every step. On her head was a man's tweed cap with the peak pulled well over her eyes, and under it her short hair showed, cut in a thick fringe. Joanna immediately dropped her luggage and went blushing to meet her mother's sister. 
and after Madalena's hundredth embrace, Aunt Party's first was like a homecoming. Was it the voice, the intonation, the Swedish odor of her breath, or something in the feeling of her arms, wondered the girl, that made her at once so familiar? In Aunt Party's face, with its strangely formed lips and burning eyes, Joanna could not see much likeness to her mother or to Georgie, yet it was as if she were hugging and being hugged by both of them, and by Lynette and Sholto, too. She felt herself taken to the family bosom. Aunt Purdy, when she had kissed Joanna repeatedly on both cheeks, held her off by the shoulders, saying she must have a good look at her. But in a trice, her steadfast gaze went from her niece's glowing face to the long widow's veil, which floated behind. "'Fee! For shame, child!' she exclaimed, stretching her hand toward Joanna's shoulder and drawing the trail of crepe towards her. You and Erskine, to wear such a thing, as though we were of those that sorrow without hope. I am amazed at you, as that all my poor sister has taught her girls. Joanna tried to explain that she had not wished to hurt her sister-in-law's feelings, but Aunt Purdy would not listen. Weak, weak, she said, shaking her head. But tis written on your face, the moment I met you I saw. You are too yielding. I used to be too yielding. Life has taught me better, though. You know what dear Browning says? That rage was right in the main, that acquiescence vain? And remember that though we are told that Christ pleased not himself, we know very well that neither did he please others. But see, we will say no more. Luckily, I always carry my shears with me. Aunt Purdy groped under her wonderful dolman among the folds of her skirt and presently brought to light a long pair of scissors, which were fashioned by several yards of tape to her waist. She then walked slowly round Joanna, commanding her to stand still while she cut off the draperies of widowhood. There, that's better, she said. She was delighted as a child with her work. And now give Auntie another hearty kiss. Again she pressed Joanna to her breast, again held her off for inspection, exclaiming, as if she now saw her for the first time, "'So this is Julie's little daughter!' By this time everybody in the station was staring at them, staring not rudely nor furtively, as people would have stared in England, but with unconcealed interest and encouraging smiles for such a display of family emotion. It is only in the matter of sex that the Italian is ill-mannered. And while Joanna felt that she would have been welcomed quite as warmly without onlookers, she knew her aunt was stimulated by their audience. This is a historical meeting, Purdy seemed to say with a careless invitation to the public, between a very remarkable woman and her niece. Look on by all means, it does not matter to me, nor to her, if she is indeed my niece. To the gnarled old peasant whom she had brought with her to carry the luggage, she announced Joanna as her Scottish niece, and the man nodded and smiled. He had to congratulate the signora on having so beautiful a relation with a face like the Blessed Virgin's, and all the way from Scotland, too. They left the station, and the peasant took them in a cart through the town, over the canal where men naked to the waist were lifting great blocks of marble out of barges, and across a stretch of perfectly flat country till they reached Torre del Lago. From here they were to climb on foot to Aunt Purdy's cottage, and the man Tommaso drove off to put the pony up, leaving the women to wait by the roadside with the luggage till his return. He would be gone about twenty minutes, Aunt Purdy said, so she and Joanna carried their belongings between them from the road to the shore of the lake, which was only a short way off. It would be pleasanter to wait there. Joanna was entranced by the pale, outspread sheet of water, so different from any of the locks at home. A mirage, she thought, must look like this. 
Even before Aunt Purdy told her, she had known it must be quite shallow all over. When they had been sitting there a few minutes, a small flat-bottomed boat ran softly into shore, not far from them, swishing between the parted reeds, and the two men in it stepped over the side and hauled their craft easily some yards inland among the bushes. Joanna and Aunt Purdy watched, and as the men left the boat and made for the road, Aunt Purdy's short-sighted eyes narrowed, straining in their direction. "'What are they carrying, Aunt Purdy?' asked Joanna, a note of childish horror in her voice. "'They look like big bunches of feathers, but they seem so heavy. "'Oh, but they are birds, and I believe they are fluttering. "'They are alive?' "'But already her companion was gone and had descended upon the two peasants like a whirlwind. "'Slaves and cowards!' Aunt Purdy was saying in her peculiar but voluble Italian "'when Joanna came up with them. "'Ill-educated, without intelligence, pieces of brute beasts!' She spared them none of the phrases most wounding to Italians. Was it for this, Niccolo, that I nursed your wife day and night for a week when she was delivered of twins? And you, Francesco, you whose sweet namesaint was the little brother of the birds, are you not ashamed to fill your disgusting belly with the flesh of these little happy bones? I do not eat them, signora, said Francesco sheepishly. There, for the market, times are hard, a man must live. Aunt Purdy stamped her foot in its zocolo. Idiot, she retorted. God have patience with you, for the saints never will. How much do you suppose you will get for them in Vigarego? Two soldi apiece, signora. Let me buy them from him, pleaded Joanna, and she felt for her purse. She could not take her eyes off the birds alive and hanging there in four great bunches, but firmly, almost roughly, her aunt caught back her hand. "'Hold your tongue, silly child,' she said. "'Francesco, you cannot impose upon the Scottish signora. You know perfectly that in the time it takes you to snare the rodignelli and carry them back to the market, you will earn twice as much by digging my garden. It is only because you are lazy and cruel that you prefer to make a few soldi by taking life. And what happens to the money?' Ah, yes, indeed. How many soldi return with you out of the little wine shop and via Cavour? Eh, you, Nicolo. Your wife told me some pretty things when she was ill, and Francesco need not grin, for he is little better. You will set the birds free at once, or I promise you get no help from me the next time trouble comes. Nicolo and Francesco accepted the situation. They had been at work snaring the land swallows since before dawn, but now they merely looked once at one another and shrugged. Aunt Purdy grasped a bunch of Niccolo's birds, but at first Joanna was afraid to touch the little creatures. She could not believe that they were not maimed, but Francesco showed her smilingly how each one had the tips of its wings twisted together and then tied with thread so that several dozen could be strung conveniently on a single string. All the signorina had to do was cut the threads and straighten the feathers afterwards, but she must hold the bird's body firmly all the while, or in struggling it might break a wing or a leg before it was ready to fly off. He gave her a penknife to work with. Aunt Purdy was snipping away recklessly, it seemed, to Joanna with her huge shears. As she took the first little palpitating body in her left hand, Joanna's heart throbbed with an almost painful elation. She remembered Cousin Gerald and the Chaffinches at Dartivy, and how she had quivered when he had pointed his knife at her breast. Birds had always played a memorable part in her dreams, persisting there like a symbol. Sometimes she had dreamed she was holding her hands above her head, while hundreds of swallows passed through her widely spread fingers, brushing her skin deliciously with their feathers. At other times she was gazing up into a sky thick strewn with stars, with stars like seeds as they fly from the hand of the sower.
when to her amazement and her great rapture she perceived that they were not stars but swallows, millions and millions of swallows, wheeling and forming into innumerable companies for their autumnal flight, and the moon had turned their breasts into silver and their wings into the glitter of diamonds. These birds in her fingers now were mostly a kind of lake swallow, black and white, fashioned for swiftness and a swooping flight. It seemed to wonder how they had ever been snared. They had vicious yellow beaks with which they jabbed unceasingly at Joanna's flesh, and their bright eyes, though really quite expressionless, seemed wide with terror. But the consummate moment was when one could raise one's hand and watch the free bird fly. For an instant the swallow's cold, bewildered claws clung to the palm, scratching deep into the flesh. Then it was gone over the lake. Then it was no more than a swooping black speck among the others yonder. As each took to flight, Joanna's heart went with it. Had not she too been snared? Snared indeed by her own desire, but still more by her own desire set free. And each bird, as it went from her, was a thank-offering for freedom. One bird she kept to the last. It was different from the others, much larger. A heavy-breasted gray bird, rather like a seagull, but with a finer beak, dead straight and pointed as a rapier. It had lain in her hands more passive than the swallows, as if dazed, and before she let it fly she kissed it deep among its breast feathers. Might it perhaps be her messenger and fly from her to Mario? Anyhow, her kiss was an unspoken message, breathing remorse, asking forgiveness, proclaiming triumph. 10. No baby coming, asked Aunt Purdy, her eyes running over her niece's figure as they took off their coats indoors. Joanna shook her head. Ah, well, perhaps it is better so, though this visit to Auntie in her lonely nest would have been something to tell a child in the years to come, wouldn't it? Your mother will be disappointed, I dare say. Julie was always mad about babies. But you will marry again, Joanna, and give her grandchildren, I can see that. Trust Aunt Purdy's eyes. Now come up the ladder and take off your hat in the bedroom. Let me go first to show you. Bring your coat with you and anything else. I leave nothing about downstairs. Then we can talk till Aurora has supper ready. Aurora! She called loudly, Aurora, Aurora, vieni. Running feet sounded from the garden, and a big, handsome contandina of about eighteen dashed into the cottage, smiling all over her face. Aunt Purdy, as she had done with Tommaso, presented her niece grandiloquently for the servant's ready admiration. Then, instead of going upstairs, she went out to superintend the picking of the vegetables, and Joanna heard her giving her orders for supper in a torrent of Italian. They had reached Aunt Purdy's remote dwelling after a hot forty minutes' climb by a footpath so narrow that the three had to walk Indian file, Tommaso leading with Joanna's luggage on his shoulder. The place was no more than a cottage, and that of the humblest kind, but it had been built on a shelf of the hill, and standing at the door with Aunt Purdy's carefully tended vegetable patches on either hand, one grandly overlooked the whole province. Below lay the great plain, like a cloak of many colors flung there, outspread from the mountains to the sea. On the right, the Apennines were its collars, sweeping in a rich curve upwards to the jewels and point lace of the Carraras. On the left, its embroidered fringes were laid by the Mediterranean from Boca de Arno, all the way round the deeply indented coastline to the long foreland of Spezia. The cottage consisted of two rooms, an upper and lower, separated by a flooring of pine which was unplastered below, and so roughly joined that there were gaps large enough to slip a finger through. The lower room was paved with square red tiles and barely furnished with a deal table. A painted wooden bookcase, three cheap chairs, and a shabby but fine old armchair of woven cane, the only one with cushions. 
Some white enamel cups and saucers mixed with common stoneware stood along the shelves of a fixed dresser on one wall, and the whole of another wall was filled by the fireplace which gave dignity to everything with its huge, sloping hood of stone. Joanna glanced at the bookcase when she was for a moment alone, saw Burns poems, The Pilgrim's Progress, looking backward, a romance of two worlds in the schonberg Cotta family. There were also several works by Pulsford, Harris, and Lawrence Oliphant, some more novels by Miss Corelli, and some by Ouida. In all, there were not more than two dozen books. On the walls hung a number of old-fashioned daguerreotypes, as well as one or two photographs made vulgar by enlargement. In one of these, Joanna recognized at once the gentle, fanatic countenance of her Erskine grandfather, whose same adored portrait hung over her mother's bed at home. And above this, Aunt Purdy had nailed a reproduction of Holman Hunt's Light of the World, the only colored picture in the room. She had pointed to this the moment they entered the cottage. Yes, you see, I will have no imaginative pictures on my wall except one, she said, and that Jesus. All the others are photographs of the men who have made Aunt Purdy what she is. There you see your darling grandpapa, my good angel who comes often from heaven to commune with me in this lonely spot, and to tell me what are the words I must say to poor humanity as it struggles in the mire of ignorance. Over there is dear Pulsford, you know him, Morgan Roth? What? You have never read it? Poor child, you have not yet begun to live. And here, here is my beloved Lawrence Oliphant, my appointed soul's mate, as I have come to believe during this last fortnight after much prayer and meditation. But the photograph which most interested Joanna was a faded cabinet one, which had been nailed up in an inconspicuous corner by the bookcase. It was so like Gerald that for a moment she took it for his picture, but on looking closer she saw that this young man had little whiskers and an old-fashioned collar. Then she knew it for a likeness of Gerald's father, her Uncle Henry, a vague figure of whom her mother seldom spoke. He was dead, Joanna knew, and she was dimly aware that for years before his death he and Aunt Purdy had lived apart. As her aunt returned, Joanna instinctively moved away from the photograph. "'Yes, that is poor Henry,' said Purdy, observing the movement. "'I keep his picture there to remind myself that I have forgiven him the great wrong he did me when he put me into what he called a nursing home, and kept me locked up there that he might indulge his fleshly lust with my children's governess, whom he never had the courage to marry. No doubt you have had a garbled story from your mother. There is not a word of truth in that, but basta. As I have said, I forgave Henry long ago, even before God punished him by a lingering illness before calling him on to another phase in his development. I would gladly have nursed him if he would have allowed me, but he refused my offer and did not even answer my letter of tender forgiveness. In that horrible asylum, all those on whom I laid my hands were immediately cured. Thus God causes the wrath of men to praise him, Joanna. During this speech, Aunt Purdy had passed her arm round her niece's waist, and at some points the girl could barely resist her inclination to burst into a fit of laughter. "'Your stomach is shaking, child,' remarked Aunt Purdy. "'You are laughing at me. No, you needn't apologize or explain. I see that in spite of the sorrow God has sent, you are still one of the herd.' I must have patience with you. Some day, perhaps, you will understand. Now follow me upstairs. Joanna climbed after her aunt up the steep ladder, which led through a square opening in the ceiling to the upper part of the house. This was even simpler than the living room, and contained neither cupboard nor fireplace. There were two iron bedsteads, a chest of drawers, an enamel basin, and ewer, 
and a printed calico curtain and a corner concealing a few clothes. The floor was uncarpeted, save for a worn strip between the beds, but here also everything was scrupulously clean. Joanna was glad to relieve her increasing feeling of tension by at once opening her traveling case and unpacking the presents she had brought from Glasgow. There were several pounds of tea on which Aunt Purdy pounced joyfully, and she fingered with critical approval the roll of good-wearing stuff her sister had sent, rough gray tweed with a herringbow pattern. She was pleased, too, with the half a dozen pairs of Balbriggan stockings and the stout morette petticoat, but what took her fancy most of all was a pair of half-worn brown velvet slippers, with cross straps and high heels belonging to Joanna. Before Joanna could beg her to keep them, she had put them on instead of her zoccoli, and even over the coarsely knitted socks they fitted her. In her delight, she walked up and down the room, holding out her full skirts like a young girl, and looking down with pleasure at her elegant feet. "'I can see you have not the Erskine feet,' she said, glancing at Joanna's. "'Though they are well enough shaped and not large, but look at mine. Though I am over fifty, they are as they were when I was seventeen. And see!' Eagerly unfastening Joanna's slippers and standing on the rough boards in her scarlet stocking soles, Aunt Purdy sprang right on the tips of her pretty toes like a ballerina, and stayed there poised for perhaps ten seconds, her arms outstretched, and her fine, serious face thrown back in triumph. It was true, she had marvelous feet, small and with strongly curved insteps. On coming into the house, she had laid aside her mannish cap in the dolman, and Joanna thought she looked stranger than ever. Her light brown hair, in which there were only a few threads of gray, was cut in a straight fringe far up on the crown and coming across to her eyebrows. Her eyes could at any moment, and apparently at will, fill with fire, and in spite of its many fine wrinkles and the absence of color from the cheeks, her face was indomitably youthful. Both face and neck were of an even yellowish tint. Her breast was full and deep. Only in a careless sagging of the stomach and thickening of the hips did she show her age. The next moment she was unrolling and measuring Julie's tweed to make sure there was enough for a new winter dress. The amount hardly satisfied her, and she began to examine Joanna's crepe-edged skirt to see if it would do as a pattern. "'How queer the fashions are now!' she exclaimed, keenly interested, but with some disgust in her voice. "'Are they really wearing such skirts in Florence? I think them ugly and immodest, fitting so close round the hips. You have the Erskine figure, Joanna.' Our women always had good, well-grown bodies. Turn round and let me look at you. Yes, you are well set up and have a good complexion like your mother, though she was never so pretty as you. But I had a fuller bosom at your age. A woman should be big-breasted, the Italian men say, and I think they are right. Mother has sometimes said I am like you, ventured Joanna, who hardly knew what to do with herself under her aunt's scrutiny. Like me, nonsense, child. Your mouth a little, perhaps, let me see. Yes, possibly a very little, but you have not and never will have my wonderful eyes. Have you ever seen eyes like mine? I have never met anyone who has. The young priest at Kamaula, our nearest village, whom I was helping and teaching, says my eyes seem always to be gazing straight into heaven. Yours, Joanna, when they stop dreaming, will have the earthward gaze. I can see and feel it. Now don't argue with me, Aunt Purdy knows these things. You will love with an earthly love, and you will suffer as all those born in March must suffer, shedding tears that are sweeter than the smiles of others. But it is not yet clear if you will ever attain to the universal, the sole love, which is mine. Why is it that I can go about alone here without fear at any hour of the day or night, here among these mountains where there are so many brutal men? 
It is because I have the perfect love with casteth out fear. In my bosom and my wonderful eyes were to fire a man's passion, so that it entered his heart to do me wrong, I should take him tenderly in my arms and give him freely all the love he is capable of taking. Men are thirsting for such love, Joanna, they, they may not be aware of it, and few women there are who have it to give. Then he will go on his way a happier man, and when the fumes of wine or lust have gone from his brain, he will know that he has been embraced by one whose soul is already in heaven, looking on the brightness of the lamb, though her aging body still walks the earth. As she spoke, almost chanting in her ecstasy, Aunt Purdy's face grew more and more radiant, her eyes more madly luminous, till Joanna could not bear to look at her. Gladly the girl would have escaped, and not from her aunt's rapture alone, but from the strong, terrifying response there was to that rapture in herself. She shrank from the deep exposure. But as she could not escape, she held herself like stone, sitting there on the edge of the bed and staring at the herringbone tweed, and the elder woman found her stolid. Neither silence nor interruption, however, could long stay the stream of party speech, and was still flowing steadily when later in the evening they sat downstairs, eating their supper of artichokes fried among eggs in a great earthenware dish. Ordinary talk was impossible, and Joanna soon gave up the attempt. Purdy, even when she put a question, never allowed anyone but herself to answer it. All she wanted was a listener, but so manifest was this need that Joanna wondered how she ever managed to pass a day in solitude. During supper, a small lamp filled the room with a deep shadow rather than with light, and in the glow of the charcoal fire, Aurora, who cooked and waited on them, looked like a goddess. Joanna could hardly take her eyes from the servant's neck which rose, a thick and golden column, from the great shoulders, and when she turned from the stove to bring them a dish, she walked royally, swinging on her hips. While Aunt Purdy talked and talked, Joanna and Aurora kept smiling at one another with warm and secret understanding of youth. Still Joanna listened, for when Purdy was not speaking of herself, she spoke of the Erskine family, and on her lips the most trifling events assumed an epic quality. An old Dumsfreeshire nurse of her childhood moved like a giantess amid her talk, and ancient Huguenot lady known as Grandy, with a title and a wonderful ebony wig, who had looked after Purdy and her sisters for some years after their mother's death, stood out as another large and gracious figure, a dwarf who had run away from a traveling circus at Peebles to take refuge in the manse and who had become the children's ill-tempered but loving slave till his death a year later, gave a note of grotesqueness. But all these dim figures, which recalled to Joanna a hundred half-heard tales of home, were no more than the background in Aunt Purdy's narrative to the stupendous figure of Papa. Papa was all and in awe, and constantly Joanna found herself glancing up at the wall from which the ecstatic face of the old minister looked down at his daughter and his granddaughter. It had been a great grief to Robert Erskine that no son was born to him for his son was to have been called Hildebrand after his hero, and he was to have been a great man, but with characteristic vigor this father of four daughters had put his dream behind him, and had thrown all his zeal into the education of his girls. After four of Shakespeare's heroines he had named them Miranda, Perdita, Juliet, and Hermione. Though at home they became known as Annie, Perdy, Julie, and Minnie, and though Annie had died at twenty of a fever contracted during one of their educational trips in the Campagna, and Juliet, eighteen, was on the verge of a mental breakdown through overstudy, his children's faces still glowed when they spoke of him. Never forget, Joanna, 
said Pardee. "'That Grandpapa was one of the world's great men. "'Your mother must at least have told you that. "'Even your Aunt Minnie, who is one of the silliest women imaginable, "'has done that much for her unfortunate children. "'Papa was not appreciated by his contemporaries any more than I am by mine. "'But in the end, greatness must be recognized, "'and my aim is to leave in my writings a picture of Papa, "'which shall be an inspiration to future generations. "'I, and myself, am nothing.' As she spoke, Purdy stretched out her arms in a magnificent gesture of humility. I cannot of myself write one word that will live, but as soon as I have sat down with an obedient heart at that little table by the window and have taken my pen in hand, Papa comes to my elbow, and though, alas, I cannot see him, I hear his voice as I heard it in childhood, gentle yet stern, and he says to me, Perdita, my child, child of my loins, most beloved, write the words I speak to you now, and write no other words, for all other words are of the devil. Once or twice, nay, many times, for I am weak and sinful still, and in the flesh, the devil has come to tempt me upon my hilltop, and I have disobeyed darling Papa's command. I have written words of my own, or I have made believe that Papa was still at my elbow when he was no longer there, for there are times when God has other work for him to do. But when I do that, when I write my own poor words or false words, the devil whispers, Do you know what happens, Joanna? And the very breath of the question Aunt Purdy broke off, turning to Aurora. Aurora, this butter is rancid again. Where did you get it? There is no excuse at this time of year. Take it away and tell Maria that the Scottish Signora is displeased with her. Having dispatched Aurora, Aunt Purdy bent her gaze once more on Joanna, leaning forward with blazing eyes. Where was I, Joanna? Ah, yes, when I disobey sweet papa, this is what happens. I go to bed and sleep, and in my sleep a hand is laid on my shoulder and a voice says, Blot the wicked words of self. And still in my sleep I get up, and after climbing down the ladder I remember no more. But when I come down in the morning as usual, I find that all the words that were words of self have been blotted by my own hand. When she had listened to the sound of her aunt's voice for more than two hours, Joanna was near the end of her strength. Supper was long over. Aurora had bidden them good night and gone home. The charcoal no longer glowed in the walls of the stove. The lamp flickered with lack of oil. Wearied out with the last weeks of grief and sleeplessness, with the excitements of the day, with the toiling walk uphill, with the strangeness of everything, Joanna's head fell upon her breast. Dear Auntie, she murmured, raising it with an effort, I am so terribly, terribly tired. I can see that you are exhausted, replied Purdy. And exhaustion is a poison. No one ought ever to be exhausted. It is stupidity, nothing else. It comes from not knowing how to rest. That is what poor Henry never could see. He was always wanting to sleep. Now I, since I have learned how to rest, how to relax every nerve and muscle perfectly, as I shall teach you presently, need hardly any sleep. The great thing is to think of your body as a string of beads. Then you can give it the rest and refreshment it requires without sleeping for seven or eight hours like a hog. Joanna made a final effort to listen, but after some time she only understood dimly that something was being read to her. Aunt Purdy's voice was like a river flowing through the room, flowing and flowing and filling the room with waves of sound, and the sound came and went like the noise of a weir in the breeze. At one moment it seemed to Joanna that she was listening to her mother. Yes, that was her mother talking of poor, poor human nature. Then it was surely Georgie's voice, assertive, full of challenging assurance. Now her grandfather, whose voice in the flesh she had never heard, was addressing her from his place on the dark wall. Then again the tones seemed to be the echo of her own secret heart. It was the voice not of a person but of a family. 
but at length only phrases came to her drifting like islands on the tide of sound. The father-motherhood of God, the central sphere, the divinity of sex, the man-woman creator. Then single words began to spin like motes in the beams of the guttering candle. Duality, soul, man, dove, love, love, love. Then gradually she sank beyond the reach of words, and so she stayed till drawn up by Aunt Purdy's ice-cold hands upon her wrists. She knew she was being told with contemptuous kindness that it was time for bed. End of Book One End of Section Twelve